The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Hello and welcome to Ask Alex episode 171 on the OneOuter.com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the OneOuter.com website. Follow us on Twitter at OneOuter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash OneOuter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on OneOuter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at OneOuter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, it's Thursday. I believe you're from a new location. How are you doing? I'm good, Barry. How are you doing? Terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I literally just in the door, um, home from, I was down south, I drove down to England for toys and collectibles and bits and pieces, and I've driven over a thousand miles in, like, three days, and last night I had to stay in a hotel on the motorway, because there was a huge crash with, like, fatalities and airlift ambulance and stuff, so a huge section of the motorway was cancelled, so why everyone... While everyone was sort of going, ah, oh, these delays and whatever, some women died and other people were in, like, critical condition, which I didn't find out till later when I read, like, the bulletins. But, yeah, long story short, I was driving home, heading straight home, and then sent on a massive detour because of the accident. And by the time I got back onto the motorway and heading home, I still had, like, three hours to go to get home driving. And... I was tired, it was dark, and it was just, you know, I just didn't have it in me. And I decided to just do the smart thing and stay in a hotel um, in one of the little towns. So I got a hotel and it all worked out well. And then driving home today in the sunshine, the police pulled me over for a random stop on the motorway. And they looked in the back of my car and it's just like a shitload of stuff. And he's like, oh, what's all this? I was like, yeah, it's toys, collectibles, some antique stuff and that. And he's like, oh. And I said, I've got a receipt for it. You know, joking, laughing, thinking, he, you know, he's not going to. And then he was like, all right, uh, I'll get a look at that before I, before you go. Uh, I was like, fucking hey, seriously? Well, like, I'm, I'm sorry, Barry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Are they allowed to do that in the United Kingdom? You're not allowed to do that in the United States. Alex, I don't know. I was so, like, crap sleep driving i just wanted to be civil and hold it together to like not give them an excuse to keep me at the side of the road anymore so they checked my license Mm -hmm. checked the car was insured taxed all that stuff yeah it's all good um okay we'll give you a signal when it's fine to drive back on the motorway okay all right on you go and i was like right bye i showed them the receipt and stuff and they were like oh do you sell this online this and that it's like I, I, I stopped myself going, I'm not going to tell you my business. You've just saw the receipt where I buy some stuff, etc. You know, easily these people can, you know, the guy, and actually it turned out, I said, I'm going to 
a little village in Scotland, there's a, I know a guy that runs a toy museum there. I always pop in and see him on the way home when I've been down in England. And he was like, oh, who's that? And I said the guy's name. Um, and he said, oh, right, yeah, he used to have a shop, such and such place. And it turns out he did. So for all I know, this guy could have been, you know, he might collect toys or sell them on the side or something. So I wasn't going to give him any information. You know, it's just like, mm. I, the more I think about it, it's like, oh, have you got a receipt for that? If I had more time and more energy in me, I would have did like what I usually, I would have said, sorry, I'm not showing you, are, are you accusing me of theft here? If you are, then, you know, you're going to arrest me under suspicion of theft and then we'll deal with this. Or, But then I'm just going to cause more problems for myself and like I was in a police station. So I did the right thing, I think. I was civil, I just went, yeah, nodded along, played the yes man to them and then just got on my way again, you know. But yeah, I wasn't too happy about it. It was strange. He said a random stop but they flew past like four cars on the motorway to then pull in behind me because i saw them in the, you know my rear view mirror um so yeah that was crap when you're trying to get home and you've had a really crap journey and sleep in a hotel on the side of the motorway the night before so um yeah and literally just in the door and i text alex to say where are we on today because our daylight savings the uk's done it now as well and last week we were <laughs> we do it every year twice a year um when the clocks go back and forward and we said, Let, yeah we said let's just get the show started now and i'm so i'm literally in the door kind of wired and just drained so um but we're here we're we're recording as live there's plenty of questions and let's talk about Alex now. Um, what <laughs> happened with what's happened with the new place? I, I said to Alex before we were testing his mic. I said it sounds like you're in a room with no furniture. So I'm guessing he's in the new apartment. That would be correct. And I did just get some furniture yesterday, but this is a large enough place that it is creating the echo effect. If you guys can hear it in my voice, I don't like complaining that I'm tired because I frequently tell people I'm the luckiest person on earth, and I really do believe that, because my job is very interesting, I get paid enough, etc., I have great friends in my life, etc., but... <laughs> Of moving across state lines and also owning your own business and running that at the same time without an assistant, it took some time. It took, it took some time this week. Uh, also, the New Jersey Devils, my uh, who I've decided is my hockey team, they're uh, they're fighting for a playoff spot. So I went to one of the games. Uh, they were going up against uh, Carolina. And Carolina was trying to stave off elimination, and it was, uh, God, it was an amazing game. But I kind of uh, screamed out my voice, <laughs> if you guys might hear it right now. So forgive me for that. But, yeah, things have been going pretty well here. Uh, life is good. Uh, can't really complain about anything. It's very different than Newark here. Uh, Newark is classified as a food desert, which means if you go into a local store, it's hard to find fresh fruit. It's hard to find traditional items. Uh, a lot of quick marts there, whatever you want to call it. And I've just been transported to the whitest, healthiest, nutri yoga 
vegan, organic, white ass place I've ever seen in my life. This, I'm in Astoria, guys. This place is nice and wow. This place is, it is gentrified. I mean, uh, I'm technically in Long Island City, and Long Island City used to be the hood back in the 70s in New York, but just the way the city is working, Manhattan just keeps expanding, right? So people come to New York to work, and there's 12 million people in this area, and eventually Manhattan can't hold them all. So what happens is, is across the water is where people start setting up shop because they run out of space in Manhattan. And that's why Jersey City has gotten pretty nice. Uh, here, Long Island City is pretty nice. I'm convinced in 20 years, Newark is going to be really nice. But, yeah, I get a little bit closer to the action here. Love this part of the country. Uh it was crazy to me, Barry, but New York just feels like the future to me. I I traveled a really far way really quickly. You can get anywhere for a couple bucks on transit. And I was heading out to Jersey the other night to see that hockey game, and the same night they had a New York Red Bulls game, the MLS squad. And I was thinking, what the hell a city on earth other than this one right now, has three hockey teams going, uh, two basketball teams going, uh, two professional soccer clubs going. Uh, by the way, 50 Broadway shows if you go into town, 20 comedy clubs, uh, just anything you can think of. Like, it, this part of the country is just so fun. There's so much going on. So I'm really happy, and I'm really happy to be here, and I'm happy to be talking to all you fine people. It's... Uh, it's great to be – oh, I'm working on the book, too, right now, so that's good fun. I uh, I did a – it's much easier to write this one because there's not 200 Venn diagrams with algebraic chains every 356 words. So it's, uh, it's much more me talking about cards, which is – really enjoyable in the written form because as you can hear I kind of talk myself out of my voice on occasion working but I'm having good fun with that it's really fun writing from a queen's apartment this is every Seattle douchebag's dream is uh <laughs> to be a writer in New York and I somehow got that so I was going to say with all that with with all that stuff going on outside, it's it's good you're in a place where you actually want to leave your apartment now. <laughs> it's like I remember I remember when we used to like not want to go out. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I remember. Okay, in Costa Rica, uh, my my brother-in-law at the time he uh, he came by my place one time. And we just talked about some things. He had to pick up something he left at the house. And he went down the street and he made, I don't know if I've ever told this story on the show. He saw some guy trying to rob someone. He, he's a cop or he was a cop at the time. And, uh, you know, he got out and he said, stop. And the guy started shooting at him and, uh, the guy killed him, and I mean that happened like a block away from my place in Costa Rica. So yeah, I, I think he did. I think he did tell that story. I, I, that's out. familiar. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the 
Yeah, so every time I go running by that part of town, you'd look around and go, damn, like that, that's some scary stuff. And then Newark was, I'm convinced that city where I was and the part of the city I was in was safe for a six-foot male to walk around. But yeah, uh, my girlfriend never visited me there. Uh, It's just not really a pleasant place. And yeah, you go from that to Barry, you gotta come here. This uh this city's something else. This is, I've been all over the world. I've never seen anything like New York. I love it here. Yeah, I've only been to New York once and I was young. I was sixteen or just before my seventeenth birthday I went to New York for a week and stayed in midtown near the Chrysler Center and I really enjoyed it, but obviously being sixteen it was a completely different trip than it would be now. So, um, yeah, I definitely will go back. I mean, obviously, I will will definitely go back. You know what? Why don't we give people a treat and not talk about ourselves another 15 minutes and just get right into some poker questions? Does that sound good, Barry? Yeah, that sounds good. I want to get this done as quick as possible and then (laughs) go and chill out. So, yeah, let's do it. Let's do one for the people. Um, This... One is an email, and we're just going to read it straight out verbatim because Alex has forwarded this one on to me, and he has said to the guy, we will read this on the next show, so we got to do that to keep Alex's word, otherwise it makes Alex a liar, and we're not going to do that on this show. (laughs) Indubitably. Yeah. So, okay, hello Alex. I really love your course, Master Tournament Poker in One Class. Since I took the course, I final tabled in two out of five live tournaments, and have yeah, stopped. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> and have stopped stone bubbling. I have a couple of questions. Number one, what is your opinion on of the stop and go play? I had the option to use it in a live tournament today, but didn't. Instead, I jammed and lost with about an average size stack, but down to about twenty-two blinds. This tournament gets about 40 buy-ins and has a pretty fast blind structure. People were starting to drop out and I had a sense that this was going to accelerate. I didn't want to be left short-stacked. I was in the big blind with pocket fours and had one open razor to 2.67 big blinds. That's very exact. He had been open raising from middle position about 10-15%. to 15%. He limps much more than that. He also shoved or called shoves three or four times already. I'm thinking now I should have called to close the bet in and then dunk bet shoved when a jack came out on the flop. This might have folded out the 10-10 he wound up tabling with the 4-4 and 22 big blinds. I figured I'm probably going with it anyway. The stop and go play might have given me more fold equity. So if you take it from there, Alex, that's his first question and then we'll go on to the second one. And this was Keith that wrote in. I can't remember if I said his name at the start or not. Did you say Keith? Keith, yeah. Hey, Keith, thank you for your question. Well, Keith, it's very interesting you ask this, because just yesterday I sent an email off to my email subscribers where I was talking about, hey, guys, I, I was rereading the myth of poker talent. I think you guys should read this. I did. This Alex Fitzgerald guy did a pretty good job on this book. I think you all need to read it. But, no, in all seriousness... I was skimming through the book because, of course, when you're writing a new book, you want to make sure, okay, let me make sure I didn't retread on this. 
Uh, let me see what was in that book. And he wanted the books to work together. What what did people not get out of the first one that maybe they wanted? What what has already been said and that doesn't need to be said again? One of the sections is about stomping goes. I've never put it in a webinar. I've never put it in one of these podcasts. I've never talked about it on YouTube. But there's an extensive analysis of it in the Myth and Poker Talent. And that's just one of many things in the Myth and Poker Talent that I think people missed, which doesn't really surprise me because... The mathematics of poker discussed unexploitable jams years before they became profitable and not profitable years before they became widely known. And I, I certainly didn't pick up that book by Mr. Chen, so I shouldn't expect anybody to pick up my book and really scan it. But if you guys want a little bit of an edge on this, in the myth of poker talent, there's there's analysis of stop and goes, go and goes. There's analysis of triple barrel bluffs. I had some really interesting thoughts on it. Uh, donk betting, I still don't see widely done in book in card rooms, and I don't see it discussed in books. Was the next thing I was going to say. I, I think you'd really enjoy the discussion, and I think this is where you should look to see me really flush this out. And one of the reasons I think the myth of poker talent didn't catch on like that was there was a great emphasis on let me show you the work. I wanted to show why I had come to my different analyses, my different plays. And in that way, I wanted to show people the assumptions I was making that way. If the assumptions ever shifted or if my assumptions were incorrect or if the game had shifted, you could adjust the plays yourself and hopefully correct me. But that does make things a great deal more confusing. One thing I'm pretty sure of is there were some Cardrunners EV calcs that were pretty simple to run and were very revealing. One of them was the stop-and-go. So this person, he said the raise size, it was a very exacting amount, but did we get an exact amount on his stack, Barry? Um, I think it was 22 big blinds he's just said. Let me double-check the email for you while you're uh, talking. While well, you're talking, not Phil. <laughs> sorry about that. Well, 22 big blinds. We'll see if this falls under it, but let, let me explain the stop and go a little bit. Let's say let, let's start with a simpler idea because the less chips you have in null and holding, the simpler the decision. Sorry, go ahead, Barry. Average stack, uh, but down to about twenty-two big blinds. So, twenty-two. Yeah, okay. yeah, that's the only information I can see from this part of the question. Okay, twenty-two. So here's what I'm thinking. Here's what I know. Anytime you have less than 10 big blinds, nobody's folding to you when you jam. I, I don't know why that is. You can raise fold to seven big blinds. I've proven it. If your hand's that bad, and the person jamming is that tight, you can raise fold. 
But the general public does not know that, does not behave in that way, because let's admit it, and gambling is more fun. So any excuse that is not going to be treated as a social faux pas, that is not going to be judged by the common populace when you're at a poker table, is going to be an opportunity that is taken. So under 10 big blinds, let's take it that way. Let's say you have nine big blinds. You have pocket four. Somebody raises to 2.5x, you jam, you know the guy's going to get called. That is pretty much always a good idea when you have pocket fours. If the guy get, gets caught bluffing with jack six offsuit, he's 50-50 against you, right? So what you generally would like to do, since the guy's going to call you anyway, and the guy's going to see all five cards anyway, instead what you'd like to do is call, see the flop, go, ah, oh, shucks, well, I guess I'm all in and jam. Now let's imagine that guy with jack six, the board is queen-king six, I've had guys show me that six and fooled to me. They go, nice try, pal. Whereas pre-flop, let's say, the guy's certainly never folding anything suited. He Most people just don't fold. They won't do it. You give the guy free license. You give the guy the full opportunity. Furthermore, mathematically, I tried to push things to the extreme and the myth of poker talent. The myth of poker talent, the idea was, let me show you very extreme analyses I've seen, and then here's how you use Card Runner's EV, here's how you use Flopzilla, now go forth and do it. And nobody did it. No, Nobody did I know because there's a few mistakes in the book, and if you had done it, I should have been getting emails about it, but I never got emails. I got about five, Right? What, with people following the book, I thought I would have gotten a lot more of them based on how many copies of the book were sold. Anyhow, don't, don't treat poker training as poker entertainment, guys. Not unless you want to stay a recreational player forever. Recreational players treat this as entertainment. The extreme example I had in the book was a guy just open jamming any flop for 2x pot, stop and go, Right? And that turned out to be more profitable than if he had just shoved. And it was about 20, I think it was 25 big blinds. It was close to 22. And I think I picked a hand. I think I picked a small pair. Yeah, I can't remember, to be honest with you. But what I kept finding in Card Runner's EV was it was much more profitable to run a stop and go. Because people, when you over, especially with these over jams like you would have with uh, the 22x, I love that you're thinking of this, Keith. Because, yeah, you call a 2.5x or whatever the raise is, and in the pot there's like 7.5x, and you shove 18x, people aren't calling. A lot of times they'll sit there with second pair of top kicker, and they'll go, I don't know if I should call. Sometimes they do fold. And the thing is, if they're folding that, they're folding nearly 90% of their hands, 80%, not 90, excuse me, 80% of their hands. That's preposterous. That's profound. So, the reason most people don't want to do it is you look like such a dumbass when it doesn't work. It's it's the discussion that they have on the Freakonomics podcast when they're discussing penalty kicks, where there's actually three options, left, right, or center. 
And center, statistically speaking, works very well because the goalie always cheats left or right. But nobody wants to hit center because if you hit center and it doesn't work, woo, you're going you're gonna to hear it from the press. Oh, dear Lord, you're going to hear it. And it's the same thing with many poker plays. If you call there with your small pair and you don't know what to do, so you check call the flop and check fold the turn, nobody cares. Nobody says anything. Yet that might have been the worst way to play the hand. If you just jam there pre-flop and allow a player that is not known for finesse play, if you allow a player that doesn't know they have to call a 2x pot jam with third pair an easy out, an easy escape, no one's going to say anything to you. No one's going to chortle at you as you walk away from the table. And if we're being completely honest with ourselves, that's what most people are really afraid of when they play No Limit Hold'em. They, they don't want the ire of the peanut gallery because that feels pretty terrible. That confirms to us we don't really know what we're doing. And many of us secretly wonder if we know what we're doing in poker because poker is so damn hard. It's a game of failure. And we don't like that confirmation. Whereas if we do something that just makes it look like we ran bad, oh, we can go to sleep easily that night, huh? What's the next question, Barry? Next question is, there's a free book set by Ape Styles called Winning Poker Tournaments One Hand at a Time in three volumes. You can get the set of books on Kindle for $66. The main reason I would get these books is to supplement Master Tournament Poker in one class. You have spoken very highly of Ape Styles and I've included excerpts on his information in Master Tournament Poker in one class. My main interest is in getting the information on shoves and calling shoves. Do you think getting all these three, all three of these books is worth it, or does one of them have the material I need? Do you offer something yourself with comprehensive information on chubs? Did I miss something in Master Tournament Poker in one class? He then goes on to say, thank you so much for the information you share. You do a great job of explaining your concepts. I'm a huge believer in the Moneyball approach to anything, including poker tournaments. The Moneyball approach was a big factor in the Philadelphia Eagles winning the Super Bowl, and it's a big factor in your success and the success of your students. Regards, Keith. Thank you, Keith. To my knowledge, those books by John Van Fleet, you know what, I don't know. I don't think I ever read through them all the way. Are they a worthwhile investment? Well, anything from John Van Fleet is a worthwhile investment. Uh, John Van Fleet is the best poker player in tournaments I've ever seen. And uh, I, I've gotten, my students constantly show me lessons that he's taught them. I've always prided myself on probably being one of the best tournament coaches, but I, I honestly think he's better right now. Like, I'm, I'm not really in the habit of lying to you guys. <laughs> So I'm not going to tell you I'm the best when I don't think I am. But if you're looking to play online MTTs, I don't know about this live game. That's not saying a bad thing or a good thing. I just don't know about it. But if you're looking for the most technically intelligent poker player, you can't be better than John Van Fleet. And he does 
have training options out there. I don't know if you're going to find what you want in that book. I think he himself would say, I would change a lot of those things around if I could have it to do do it again. But he does have materials out there that he he has authored recently that are very, very good. But they're not cheap, is the thing. And to his credit, they shouldn't be cheap. He's essentially solving your game for you. And he's done a lot of deep analysis and incredible work. So if you... uh, uh, if you look up what he's up to right now, you'll find all that stuff. You'll see what he's doing. It, it doesn't come cheap, but it's worth the money. I'll, I'll tell you that. Uh, I would be remiss to not say I have one of my products on sale right now, uh, Why Ape Styles is Right, which was a couple years ago. Uh, John and I got together and did a one-off webinar where he essentially talked about some stuff with poker that I found really fascinating, and he was kind enough to let my students in on it and let me do a webinar on it. Now, that's a couple years ago, though, and I think he'd want to change some things around if he had it again. But, yeah, that's on sale right now for uh, 75% off, and Barry is going to put a video in the liner notes that previews it. It's uh, one of the cool things John did. You know, it's not, not as deep as the stuff he does on its own, but he, he did show a lot of bluffs that he does that aren't in the traditional lexicon of poker player bluffs that have helped me a great deal, especially in live tournaments where the embarrassment factor is quite real. And he discussed playing from the blinds and he discussed a lot of the things that he filled in the gaps that I I didn't touch upon. I'm not really sure why, but big blind play became a fascination, an obsession with me, because all your losses come from the big blind in tournament poker. The big blind keeps getting bigger, and every nine hands, it's right there. And... I felt if I could neutralize that, I I had I'd solve tournament poker. You could you could not be great from other positions, but you you get by. And I pretty much proved that right because I was actually struggling quite a bit with my positional play at that time. Uh, my my post flop play needed a rework, but I got down my big blind to negative fifteen per hundred, which meant. Uh, at that time, I, I wasn't paying the big blind 85% of the time. And the way I was doing that was with check raising and dog betting consistently. But John had a completely different way of doing it. He, he was very good at the rejams. He was very good at flatting from that position and uh, uh, playing short stacks much, more, much differently. And he was nice enough to come in and discuss that. And we have a very complete guide on how to use Cardrunner's EV. He showed me some Cardrunner's EV tricks. I transcribed it and very painfully put together uh, a webinar on it. And yeah, that's, uh, that's normally 200 bucks, but uh, yeah, uh, John agreed to put it at 50 with me, so I put it out there. I'm trying, trying not to make a big deal out of it because he has his own stuff, uh, with 
other other guys working on it with Rob Tennyon and all that, and then, uh, they they do incredible work, honestly, like amazing work. And I, I'm not trying to step on their toes, but yeah, that's on sale for a few more days. You you guys can check that out if you'd like. Uh, it'll be in the liner notes. Okay, uh, let's go to the next question now, and this one's from Mike. Hi Barry and Alex, thank you for answering my question about MinBetting a few weeks ago. This time, I want to know Alex's thoughts on multi-tabling versus playing only one table. I've attempted a few times to play two tables at a time and feel overwhelmed. I lose focus easily, which is the reason why I only play one table. I have a small sample size of 2,200 hands on ACR playing 25NL with a big blind of 100 of 32 and an EV adjusted of 29. In addition, I plan on playing some live poker at Foxwoods in a few weeks and you can only play one table at a time live, so it makes sense to me at least to be accustomed to playing only one table and giving the game 100% of my focus, which is more fun for me. My question after writing this beautiful soliloquy is that is possible? Is it possible to be a great player online without multi-tabling? Thanks. Uh, thank you for your question. Yeah, it's possible. Might not be probable, but it's possible. One, sorry guys, you might hear a creaking door. <laughs> I'm not really sure. I'm still learning all the bits and bobs as far as uh, this apartment. Oh, that seems to be my window. Sorry about that. One second. There's always something on this damn podcast, Barry. Have you ever noticed that? There's <laughs> well, just it's, quite, always... it's quite windy here as well just now, and... Over at my fireplace, there's like always a creak because the old chimney's closed up, but you still hear when it's windy, you you hear like noises and like movements and creaks and things as well. It's weird. It's, I don't know if you've seen Curb Your Enthusiasm, but they, when he buys the house and at night there's this noise and he's like, what's that? What the hell's that? And his wife's like, just a house sound. And he's like, what? A house sound? What do you mean a house sound? Like, she's like, every house has them. He's like, no, that's this guy, and he thinks he's been like ripped off by the guy that sold him the house. Because <laughs> like at three in the morning, he's like, I can't sleep with this shit, you know. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's really funny. It's a good episode. It just made me think of uh, the house sound, you know. But yeah, every house does have them. The house I grew up in, uh, not a bad house, maybe not. It was behind a Nike missile silo and a gun range, so yeah, it was pretty quiet. Uh, most of the time. The, the house I grew up in, the house sound there was, I hate you, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. That was my dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, that house I grew up in made so much damn noise whenever the wind would come through. It was incredible. But going back to this question... God, I was so proud of us for being so professional this episode that derailed me so hard. No, no, um, no don't apologize for our show and the way we are doing it. That's it. We got to stop doing that, the self-deprecating stuff. This is this is professional. It's just the way we do it. We're I'm professional. Pretty sure, I'm pretty sure people like us for the self that yeah, <laughs> appreciating well, humor because if I always forget how strange poker players are because I don't spend a lot of time 
with poker players. I, I think one of the largest reasons for my success is because poker is a game with real-world people. The people come from the real world, and in order to be better at poker, you must understand people from the real world. It can't always be in this theoretical context. And if you just live in la-la poker land all the time, you're never going to succeed. And... Sometimes I just forget how crazy poker players are. But, yeah, then I'm around them and I'm, whoa. But, yeah, anyway, getting back to your question. Um, what was the question? Sorry. Can you be a great player if you're only playing? Oh, Can you be a great online player if Thank you're only you. playing one table? Yeah. Uh, well, I, one of the greatest things I ever read about was, and this goes back to real life experiences, I've been blessed enough to be around a number of musicians. And I find musicians have real insight into deep practice, deliberate practice. And something that music teachers do all the time is you show up for your, uh, your lesson. They say, okay, do it double time. Now do it half speed. And I'll do it in a different key. And I thought, that's interesting. Why do they do that? Well, it expands your knowledge. It, it keeps rewiring your brain. There's a lot of great research on that. It comes up a lot in the books that we talked about on this podcast, Bounce, uh, Mindset. Uh, I, I'm halfway through this book. I'll finish it eventually. Uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth. Uh, and they they talk about how your brain uh, literally rewires it. Uh, I think that you pronounce the word myelin, like it myelinates the brain, and music teachers are actually very good at this in that they'll, they'll go, okay, go back to that song from four lessons ago. Uh, okay, now do it in double time, do it half speed. And what this does is it keeps expanding your knowledge because it puts you into uncomfortable territory and you have to find a way to escape. You have to think actively. Your autopilot, most of my lessons, actually recently I, I've been redoing my lessons because I can't get my students out of autopilot. They go, this is what I do in this situation. They don't say, I'm thinking of doing this. And then I have the opposite problem with some of them, which is they're always thinking, they're always studying, they're, they're not playing, right? I think it's a great idea to one table. I, I've one tabled many poker sessions in my life. I love one tabling. I tend to do it with a bigger buy-in. I, th I think that's a great way. If you have the money, and you de damn well should if you're gambling, guys, if you have the money, and you want to one table a major on Sunday and pay great attention, I think that's awesome. But, but get your money's worth. Write notes on the players. Rewatch every hand uh, with a hand history replayer. Uh, analyze the stats every time someone opens. Don't do anything automatically. And I think that's a great way of getting out of your autopilot, doing that deeper practice, that more deliberate practice. But at the same time, I think you have to sing the song double time and in a different key at times. So that means sometimes I play a number of tables. And when I play a number of tables, it's because I have a very developed system. 
Master Tournament Poker in one class is a large percentage of my system. And that system is applicable to many games, most games. And I think that's really good because you start with a large number of tables and then you get some deep runs and then you can do deep focus at that point. Should you multi-table without a system? No. I think it's actually a really good idea when you start to not play a number of tables. It sounds like you're overwhelmed by that. By all means, don't, don't do that then. If you're living in a country or a state where Poker Stars is a staple, even though you guys know me, I don't recommend that site ever, uh, play some Zoom Poker. That way you can one table, but you can get out of the hands really quickly. If you want to sign up, there is a website. I think you can use promo code ALEXF, all capital letters, to get a discount. I don't get anything from that, by the way. If you do that, I'm just letting you know. Uh, that's a discount I give my students. Uh, advanced poker training will allow you to play a ton of hands on one table really quickly. But get, get the hands in and think deeply about the hands. We've all played more hands than Doyle Brunson. And yet he could probably beat all of us at a no-limit hold'em table because he thought more deeply about the hands. By the way, this applies to your life as well. I think after a day in your life, you should write down thoughts in your journal. Think about it. Try, try to get more out of it, uh, just, just like they were hands in a poker game. And furthermore, when you play, in order to induce deep practice, you need a few ideas. You don't want to watch a training video and have a hundred ideas, or watch ten training videos, and have a thousand ideas, and then try to apply all of them at the same time. The Navy SEALs have three to five items that they are applying in every mission. They don't give you more than that, because their belief is you'll screw up. doesn't matter how good your training, in, it, training is, because Lord knows those guys have extensive training. They still don't believe it's going to work. So... Yeah, I think you can be a successful player, only play a couple tables. There are some high-stakes cash game players I know who have never played more than a couple tables in their life. I, when I started, I was horribly afraid to play more than a couple tables. But if you want to test out your system on a number of tables, first off, you need to know you have a cohesive system. I give you a huge head start in Master Tournament Poker in one class. But if you identify a situation you don't know, you have to mark that hand. Let that hand go. The guy outplayed you here. You weren't prepared. Don't come to his area of the field and play his game. Just go, nope, you took this one. Fold. And then later on in your free time, study that, study that situation. And the tools I find that are incredible for that situation are... Cardrunners EV and Flopzilla, and there are guides on how to use them for free all over the internet. Our, the myth of poker talent talks about them extensively and shows the most fascinating analyses that did come when I started working with those tools. Uh, I, I hope that helps you. Okay. okay. Uh, we've got time for... Wow, Alex. Yeah, good. Cheers. <laughs> um... We've got time for one more question, I think. Yeah, we do. We've got 15 minutes left. Okay. This one is... Where is it? This one is from Mike. We've done that one. So let's go from Rene. 
and this one is hi Barry my name is Rennie from I'm from Sacramento and I have a question for the SSNL I like the 3.5 4x opening raise when stacks are shallow 20 to 30 big blinds when do you adjust opening raises towards the end of the tournament thank you for the podcast uh, Renee thank you for your question well guys I'm going to talk about something here. Well, I'm, I'm going to talk about something here that I, I'm putting myself. I'm put. I think it's a good enough idea that I probably shouldn't debut it until I have something to sell with it. But I'm just going to talk about it right now because then I think that's going to put pressure on me to get it done. If you think about it, when you're opening, what's the most important thing to look for? This took me a really long time to think of. I'm glad you like the 3.5x or 4x and you know it works, but I think we need to discuss why does it work. Because if you know why it works, you can apply it all the time. You can apply it in situations maybe I'm missing. Uh, You can make the play your own. The way you make the play your own is you ask yourself, what is the most important thing I'm looking for when I open? And a concept I think that we don't give enough credit to in poker is, I think the word is primacy. What's the prime thought? What is the most important thought behind your play? Because if you're playing live poker, how much time do you really have before everybody starts pressuring you to move? It's usually about 13 seconds. Online, you have about 30 Right? Time banks start beeping at you sometimes at 15. So if you think about it, my, my belief is during those 15 seconds, you're going to think very clearly. Then the timer is going to go off. The dealer is going to open his hand and wave at you. People are going to start staring at you. And I don't believe the thoughts you will have at that point will be of the same quality as the thoughts that you had during the first 15 seconds. So whatever you were thinking of in those first 15 seconds are going to take up a very large percentage of the analysis that is going to lead to your play, which, remember, in No Limit Hold'em can undo you very, very rapidly, could end your tournament. So whatever thought you start on is going to be disproportionately powerful. So you must work to have your most important thought ready for each situation. What is the most important thing for me to think of right now? When you're opening, what do you think is the most important thought? Your most important thought is, will someone three-bet me? Who is going to three-bet me if they're going to three-bet me? Is there a way I can open to an amount that will dissuade them from three-betting? And if I can't, are they three-betting enough that I shouldn't even open here? This is why I I make hand rankings charts, because people want them, and it's a good starting point, but I don't love them. Because people say, should you open King-10 offsuit from the hijack? And I don't want to respond with it depends because that's a BS answer. But it's truly based on will cutoff button 
small blind, three bet you. If they're going to three bet you a large percentage of the time, no, you shouldn't open there. Are they never going to three bet you? Then by all means open. I can't find a database where when you raise and people are just calling you, you're not making money. And I obviously can't find a database that when you raise and everybody's folding, you're not making money. But I have a very difficult time finding a database where when you're three bet and you call and you play defense out of position, you're making a nickel. You're lucky to only be losing 100 big blinds per 100. You're the reason I put out the 3.5x is it's not the be-all, end-all, and I don't just open the 3.5x all the time. It's an idea, an idea you can change at any time. Let's say the stacks behind you are 11x, 14x, 12x, and you know they're not going to 3-bet you unless they're jamming. Why would you open a 3.5x at that point? Open to 2x. And if they flat you, maybe they're not going to flat you. You know they're not going to flat you. But if they do flat you, it's not the worst thing in the world because I don't ever want you absolutely bluffing. I think that era has passed in no limit hold'em. Usually someone's going to play back to you. You're going to see a far greater number of flops uh, than before. That being said, you're always asking yourself, will they three-bet me? Will they three-bet me enough that I have to fold here? And if I adjust the race size, will that get a three bet. So sometimes I'm opening to 3.5x, 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 and I can, I can feel people coming after me. And then I'll open to 2x. And it's like throwing a change up in baseball. People look at it and they get confused and they just call me. Boom, I've won. I'm not making as much money as if you folded, but I'm making money. Whereas if you three bet me, I'm not. So I've won. Whereas let's say I open a 3.5x and you know that's juicy now because you've seen me raise fold from that and you're, you're ready to come over with 8.5x with your ace nine offsuit because there's so much money out there. But the 2x comes out and it kind of freezes you up. So you just fold or you call. There you go. It's well applied. But a lot of this is based on the stacks behind you, what you perceive the player's three betting tendencies to be to a different raise size. So from shorter stacks, a lot of times, no, I don't raise to 3.5x. Let's say I have 15x. I'm not raising to 3.5x. I don't, I don't see the need. 2.7x a lot of times still looks like a significant portion of my stack, and it's like I'm not folding, so I'll do that, or 2.8x or something like that. And really, this is where the art of no limit hold'em enters understanding your opponent becomes the most important thing. And sometimes your goal with short stacks, 20, 30 big blinds, 35 big blinds, if there's 2.5x out there with blinds and annies, you pick that up. That's an increase to your stack of 10%. That's significant. But with 100, 200 big blinds, you pick up the blinds and annies, it might be worth a half a percent, one percent. So a lot of times you, you want a guy to call you out of position. So maybe it gets folded to me on the button, and I have ace-10 offsuit. And I know the big blind is the type of guy to call me with 10-6 suited, 10-7 suited, 10-8 suited, 10-9 suited, jack-10 offsuit, queen-10 offsuit, king-10 offsuit, ace-9, ace-8, ace-7, ace-6, ace-5, ace-4, ace-3, ace-2. 
hundreds of combinations that I'm dominating, and I know if he flops a pair, he's not folding, so I'm set up to make 40 big blinds if he flops anything, because most likely I'll be ahead of him. I don't want to make it 3.5x on that button and cause that guy to think. I want to keep things in his autopilot, make it 3x, make him call. Because 40 big blinds to a 200 big blind stack is still 20%. It's a huge Hail Mary 40-yard play. Whereas not every big blind is created equally. Getting just a couple big blinds, 1% increase, is not really going to move the needle. It's not going to put me in that winner's circle. So I think we can work better at our opening sizes by asking ourselves, what are we trying to do? Am I, try, am I trying to take this guy to the river and drown him at the beginning of the tournament? Or, or am I trying to chop out Moneyball style a few big blinds here at the beginning? I think that's a great first notion. Then we also have to ask ourselves, how often does this guy three bet? Will this open size dissuade that? If it doesn't, why am I opening I, ho I hope these tips help you, Renee. Thank you for writing in. Okay, and that is all we have time for this week. Alex, is there anything else you want to raise? Any Easter special offers or anything coming up? And how can people get in touch with you for coaching? I lose track if you're still doing that or not. Um, and how can they get your webinars and stuff? Yeah, to celebrate my Lord's resurrection. Let me tell you how to play cards for a cheaper right now. Uh, <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, there's not an Easter sale, but uh, YH Styles is Right is 75% off right now till the end of the month. So you guys got a couple days. Check out the liner notes to see the free YouTube video I have out for strategic content. And... There's a little preview of the kind of bluffs that we like to discuss in that video. Follow me on Twitter, at The Assassinato. Write me at alexatpokerheadrush.com. And sign up for my newsletter at pokerheadrush.com. It's kind of my ugly little blog site, but top right, you can sign up for my newsletter, and you'll get four or five times a week, you'll get much better-looking emails that have free articles, free YouTube videos, free uh, podcasts like the one we're doing right now. So do be sure uh, to sign up for that. And yeah, thank you guys for listening in. It was fun to do this again. Yeah, and keep your questions coming in for our future show, questions at oneouter.com on email, email even, or tweet them at oneouter.com or post them in the Facebook group and we will get them read out. We have an absolute ton in just now. Um, but we will. We always read everyone. I don't. I don't think I've ever refused a comment or a question, which is quite quite good show. And the abuse has been zero. Uh, so that's good. That's good. Maybe we're not doing it right enough, Alex, because we should have more haters. Although maybe the haters can't even be bothered to email in because they know I'll just rip them to shreds. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, okay. Thanks to everyone for listening. We do appreciate it. Keep your questions coming in for our next show, and we'll see you next Thursday. Cheers. Cheers. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> uh, <hey>, well done. <laughs> have, you hung, have you hung around for an hour just to do that? <laughs>
The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.